you and I know that Black Americans are dying of the coronavirus at three times the rate of white people. Calling systemic, structural, and institutional racism a public health crisis, the UCLA Center for Public Policy recently said that Black people only make up 13% of the population, but they account for 26% of COVID deaths. In the matter of Black lives, the incarceration rate for Black people is five times the rate for white people. Both unemployment and poverty rates are twice as high for Black people as for whites. Black wealth is only one-tenth of white wealth. The death rates for Black is generally higher than whites for heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, flu, pneumonia, diabetes, HIV, AIDS. Black Americans are two and a half times as likely as white Americans to be killed by police officers in this nation Living while Black is a pre-existing condition for poverty, poor health, and death. I don't really want to live in a world where white supremacy keeps its knee on the neck of Black folks. In 1903, W.E.B. Du Bois said that the problem, the greatest problem of the 20th century is the color line. I'm convinced that in this 21st century, racism, white supremacy is still the most dangerous and horrific problem in America. So, in the matter of black lives, can you forget the image of George Floyd with the knee on his neck? Eight minutes and 46 seconds? I can't. It's like Emmett Till on the cover of the Jet magazine. It's like strange fruit hanging from southern trees. When Brianna Taylor was sleeping in her bed and shot eight times, and now the report's coming out that there are no health conditions affecting her, I think is what I read. Like gunshots are not in the autopsy. I'm not sure I'm really uh, confused by that. To be Ahmad Arbery running while black, hunted while black with trucks, getting him in a corner and one hitting him while black and then shooting him to death. Who can bear this disregard for black lives? I can't, but some people can. Oil money had made Tulsa, Oklahoma, a thriving town of 100,000 people. It was uh, highly segregated, so the 10,000 black citizens lived in only one part of the town that was called Greenwood, the Black Wall Street. On May 30th, 1921, a teenage black boy named Dick Rowland, a teenager, entered an elevator in the Drexel building, one of the office buildings on the south side, and a woman in the elevator, Sarah Page, screamed. And of course, trained of the dangers of screaming white women, this teenager runs away. The police are called, and the next morning they arrest him. Now, by this time, rumors of what had happened on the elevator had circulated through the uh, city's white community. In fact, the front page of the paper covered a story about it, that he had sexually assaulted her. As evening fell, an angry mob of white people grew. Uh, one of the sheriffs um, refused to hand over this young teenager. Black men armed themselves and came. The next day, more armed whites and 1,500 armed whites to like 80 armed blacks. Um, this just became a crazy riot turned massacre. 
After shots had been fired, after chaos broke out, the black men went back to their neighborhood. And over the next several hours, groups of white Tulsans, some of whom had been deputized and given weapons, committed numerous acts of violence on the black people, including shooting an unarmed black man in the movie theater in the matter of black lives. As dawn broke on June 1, thousands of white citizens poured into the Greenwood district, looting, burning, um, leaving people homeless and devastated. Um, at first, the reports were that there were only like 36 deaths, but that number is now reported as more like 100, 100 to 300 people killed and 8,000 people made homeless. You know what killed those black people. It's the same thing that killed Brianna and Emmett and George and Eric and Michael and Sandy and Trayvon and too many people to name. What killed those people, what killed those people is the same thing that beat Rodney King and Fannie Lou Hamer within inches of their life. We know what it is. It's the same thing that can allow a water system to poison children in Detroit to save money. It's the same thing that makes school districts for black children poorer than white. It's the same thing that redlined housing and didn't allow people to grow wealth. It's the same thing that keeps its knee on my neck. It's whiteness. I'm calling it whiteness. Because when you say white privilege, some white people go, oh, I don't have any privilege. I can't afford college. My kids are poor. I, I can't pay my bills. I don't have any privilege. If you say white supremacy, some white people will say, well, I don't, I'm not, don't think I'm superior. I don't think I'm supreme. So that doesn't really work for me. So I'm going to call it whiteness. And by whiteness, I mean the codified, policed, institutionalized, ratified and culturized anti-black racism that makes being black in America a pre-existing condition for diabetes, for heart disease, for COVID-19, for death at the hands of the state. Whiteness is a disease as in a dis-ease that affects black folks, indigenous folks, Latinx folks, Asian folks, but it infects white people nice white people, progressive white people, Christian white people, nice white people of all faiths and people of no faith can catch whiteness because they're whiteness adjacent. They can catch it because whiteness has had a long history on this nation's shores. Since the very first white people got on boats and came across the pond to discover the land, to take the land, from the indigenous people who lived here. I'm a part of the church that's a part of the people, the nice white Dutch people who took Lenape land in Manahatta, the hilly land, for like $27 or something like that. I'm, I'm a part of that church. That's, that's the collegiate church, my friends. I have to confess that. This African-American woman is whiteness adjacent. Whiteness is a dangerous disease. Whiteness is violent, it's narcissistic, it's self-absorbed, it insists on its own way, it colludes with capitalism. Whiteness is a pathological liar. When it hears the words Black Lives Matter, it retorts All Lives Matter because white 
Ness is confused and thinks that mattering is a zero-sum game and somehow deludes itself, whiteness does, to think that white people are having the same problem as black people. Whiteness is confused, plus whiteness lies. Whiteness lies. It's opportunistic and it's brutally manipulative. That's why the president is going to Tulsa, to the place of the massacre, to the place where at Juneteenth, the remaining enslaved Africans were told that they were free and equal to the white people. He's taking whiteness to this place of mayhem and massacre to stand on the blood-soaked ground. And as Kamala Harris said, not just wink at the white supremacists, but to throw them a welcome home party. Juneteenth, the day when the last 250,000 slaves in the, in the Confederacy, if you will, were liberated. Trump is taking whiteness to Tulsa, resisting multiracial, multicultural movement for black lives that's erupting not only in America, but around the globe. He's taking whiteness, encouraged by a few black leaders who I might add also suffer from whiteness. He's taking it to Tulsa to flip us the bird. Whiteness can blind anyone. It can blind anyone from the value of other human life, from the ways we're inextricably connected. Whiteness can increase the vulnerability of being tricked by power and greed into standing with whiteness against other humankind. But make no, make, make no mistake about it. The God of love who hears our cries, the God the psalmist is praying to, the God who listens and leans in to end our suffering, who partners with us for the healing of the world and the creation of a more just society, that God did not create whiteness. That is a human construct. God created each of us in her image and loves us, values us, values, has a preference, if you will, for the least of us, which would be, in these United States, according to whiteness, the black ones of us. So black lives matter to God. The psalmist says in the message version, I love God because God listened to me. I begged for mercy. God listened as I laid out my case before God. Death was staring me in the face. Hell was hard on my heels. Up against it, I didn't know which way to turn. And I called out to God for help. Like George called out to his mama, please God, save my life. God is gracious. God is the one who is compassionate. God is the one who saves. God is the one who is on side of the helpless, the marginalized, the ones on the border. God is the one who tells us, black, exhausted, overwhelmed, hardworking, traumatized black people, relax and rest. God has showered you with many blessings. Black lives matter. Black lives matter to God. And the psalmist says, 
again in the message version, oh my God, here I am, your servant, your faithful servant. Set me free for your service. I'm ready to offer the Thanksgiving sacrifice and pray in your name. I will complete what I promised to do. I'll do it in the company with your people. Those of us who say we have faith in the Holy One, those of us who have been rescued by the Holy One, redeemed by the Holy One, liberated from captivity by the Holy One, set free by the Holy One to be human in this world, we're called by that same one to do God's work. We're set free, not just for freedom, but free to serve God's people. Free to let our worship be the kind described in Isaiah 58 where we feed the hungry, where we clothe the naked, where we do not ignore our kin. And all of us are kin. All of us are related, inextricably connected one to the other in a web of humanity, Dr. King said. When one is suffering, all are suffering. Injustice anywhere is justice everywhere. Injustice everywhere. We, we are the ones we've been waiting for to liberate this nation from white supremacy. Oops from whiteness. How do we do this in the context of multiracial life? When part of the contract we're making in our congregations, let's be honest, Riverside and Middle Friends, is we're going to get along. We're doing this multiracial, multi-ethnic experiment and not everybody knows how to do it. In fact, very few congregations do and we're going to do it and we're not going to like step on each other's toys or make each other angry. We're going to just get along. That's not enough. We have to be more than multiracial. We have to be anti-racist. Ibram Kendi says, if you're not anti-racist, you're racist. We have to be anti-racist. And that means zero tolerance for racism in our houses, on our streets, and in the boardroom. That means zero tolerance for racism in our social media. It means not consuming racism. It means sitting it away, sitting it down. It means not trafficking and those old stories or those old jokes, you know, we don't have Confederate flags on our trucks, but we might actually still have racism in our world, whiteness in our world. It means rebuking whiteness, white friends, and allying up. It means reading the stuff and knowing the stories and getting educated so we can change the story. It means declaring to your world around you, you are going to rebuke whiteness. And instead, do love. In the matter of black lives, my black friends, every now and again, we can be colluded. We can be co-opted. We can stand so close to whiteness that it, in, it gets inside of us. And we start wondering about those other kinds of black people, you know, the darker brother, the ones who are not the top 10th or the ones who are not light, bright, and with good hair. We, I know I'm doing a little insider baseball in front of the white people. We need to just check on that in ourselves. Don't accidentally say things to children that make them think that their chocolatey, nappy gorgeousness is somehow not as beautiful as you and I know it is. 
and all the other folks who will hear this sermon and think, well, it's not just about black and white and she doesn't care about Asians and Indians. And yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I care about your role in this nation and disrupting racism. I care that you won't buy into blackness on the bottom and decry blackness and get as far away from blackness as you can and tell yourself, well, at least I'm not black. I pray that you will be in solidarity, in solidarity with African-American people and that together all of us who are black and brown will line up against whiteness in love and defeat its power to divide us and conquer us. We, Middle Family, we, Riverside Church, we, the multiracial, multicultural congregations in the United States, have a unique opportunity and a special calling to practice God's reign on earth in all of its multiple complicatedness, all genders, all race, all ethnicities, all manifestations of sexuality, and the many ways that we are different classes and different educational um statuses. We are all the people whose cries God hears and who expects us to serve her by rescuing each other from whiteness. I'm calling you to action. I'm calling you to read, learn, study, be in solidarity. I'm calling you to march Maybe not the black and brown people just yet because COVID is still out there and it is not safe. But I'm calling you to send your allies out in the world. I'm calling you to use the resources around you, social media, the way you can use your pen, the way you can use your voice to dismantle the master's house with new tools of solidarity. Black lives matter to me and I want my life and my well-being, and the well-being of my grandchildren, and my brothers, and my sister, and all of my Black cousins, and aunties, and uncles, and friends to matter to you. May it be so.